Now this morning, I, I want you to use your imaginations for a minute. So I'm gonna ask you, because it's probably the best way to use your imagination, to just close your eyes, okay? Just close your eyes, don't fall asleep. I want you to imagine that one morning you wake up to the sound of a buzzing noise, to the sound of chewing. You get up and you get out of bed and you walk to the door of your house and you open the door and as you cast your eyes upon what you expect to be a beautiful morning sky, you see that it's dark, that there's light trying to pierce through the darkness but barely getting through. You look carefully at the sky and you see these large insect-like creatures flying by, flooding the sky. Creatures that look like the body of men with teeth like razors riding on what looks like horses and yet they're all one and the same. They're invaders who pass by leaving nothing in their wake but dust. The farm that you slaved over has been eviscerated. The trees are stripped of their fruit and their vegetation. Every plant is devoured and every vine is gone. At that moment, you're standing in disaster. Unlike any disaster you have ever seen. In that moment, you're standing in disaster that is real because it's personal. Why don't you open your eyes? That's what it was like for a man named Joel. A man who lived in what we call uh, the Old Testament days. A man who was a farmer and most likely a man who grew, uh, grew grapes for wine. But more importantly, not just a, a farmer, but a man who was a prophet. Prophets in the Old Testament, we all, you know, when we look at the Old Testament, we see this group of people called priests and this group of people called prophets. The difference is that priests were people who went about teaching people the law, God's law. Prophets were people who went around warning people when they wandered away from God's law. That's what Joel was. He was a, a simple farmer who one day woke up and saw everything that he had done devoured. Devoured by creatures called locusts. Now, we don't see many locusts around here. Some places in the Midwest see them. 
Uh, they, in the Middle East, they're often seen. In fact, in the 1950s was probably one of the greatest uh, outbreak of locusts that, ha that have been around in modern times, uh, where tens and thousands of acres had just been eviscerated. That's what Joel woke up to. But in the midst of that, in the midst of that disaster, God used it and God used him to speak. This morning as we continue our series called Majoring on the Minors, we're gonna look at how to handle disaster. Disaster that comes knocking at our doors when we're not ready. It's part of what makes it disaster. Um, we call this series Majoring with the Minors because while their message was brief, um, it was still major when it came, when it comes to how to live in the presence and power of God. Um, let's look at the first verses of this passage. The word of the Lord came to Joel, the son of Hethiel. Hear this, you elders. Listen, all you who live in the land. Has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your ancestors? So what we see taking place here is an incredible, almost apocalyptic type disaster that had never been seen before. And Joel says, wake up, look and listen and see what's happened. Next verse. Tell it to your children and let your children tell it to their children and their children to the next generation. What the locust swarm has left, the great locusts have eaten and the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten what the young locusts have left, other locusts have eaten. And I'll explain that in a minute. Wake up you drunkards and weep, wail all you drinkers of wine, wail because of the new wine, for it has been snatched from your lips. Now, a couple things we see here. When he's talking about locusts upon locusts, is he's talking about these swarms that just come. And if you know anything about locusts, they, 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 they move in this movement where one group will land and eat and another group will just kind of lunge before them and they'll eat and then the group behind them will lunge forward and because the more they eat, the more they breed and the more they breed, the more they eat and they just keep hop, hopping over one another, expanding and devouring everything. Disaster. Except what we see here is it's not just a natural disaster. What we see is it, it's a God-made disaster. A God-intended disaster. To wake up the people of Israel. Now when Joel was writing, unlike what we saw um, um, last, last week with Hosea, Joel is writing to the southern part 
of the nation of Israel. If you remember, we said last, year, uh, last week that um, Israel was split between north and south. Joel's speaking to the southern part of Israel and warning them. Using what God had done in these locusts uh, to give them a picture and, and an image of the invasion of the Assyrians that was going to come and wreak even a worse disaster upon them. It was God sending a message. Disaster is interesting. It can be something subtle that comes in small pieces and leads up to our devastation, or it can just come quick and unimaginable like we see with Joel. But that disaster always comes because God either initiates it or God lets it happen. Now, uh, let me say that again. Because God initiates it or he lets it happen. Why does God do that? God acts within disasters not because he's a monster, not because um, he doesn't love us or he's abandoned us. He comes in disaster in order to bring judgment, but not judgment that's abandonment, not judgment that is meant to destroy us, but judgment that's meant to bring us back before we go too far and destroy ourselves. It's interesting just, just how that can happen to us in, in, in small pieces and in big pieces. I think of a story of a, a pastor who went, out, who went out golfing one Sunday. In fact, he literally uh, called out um, and got to his associate and said, I'm sick and I can't come in today. I need you to take over. And then went out and played golf. I've done that numerous times to Peter. Um, if only I knew how to play golf. And, and, and he went out and he was, he was hitting the ball and two angels were kind of hovering over him and one of them was just irate and said, he is gonna, he's gonna get it for this. I am gonna get him and make sure he feels this. And so as he was golfing, he, he would normally shoot for 200 yards and all of a sudden he's shooting for 300 yards. It becomes the best game of his life. In the end, he has a score of like 61. It's the best game he's ever shot. Finally, the other angel looks at the angel next to him and says, I thought you were going to get him. He said, I did. Who's he going to tell? Yeah, you see, judgment can be, justice can, which judgment really is, it can be something subtle that all of a sudden just sucks away our joy. All of a sudden makes our sinful efforts futile. And other times it can be huge. Why is that? 
There's a principle in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 31. Uh, can you put that up? This is, these are the words that Moses spoke to the people of Israel concerning the law of God. He said, assemble before me all the elders of your tribes and all the officials so that I can speak these words in their hearing and call the heavens and the earth to testify against them. And call the heavens and the earth to testify against them. See, we forget that God has designed everything. God owns everything. God moves all the pieces around the board. And we get away with nothing. And there are those times that God has just built it into the universe that the universe will speak back to us. There are those times where if we violate God's principles, we'll experience judgment. If we go too far, we'll be stopped because the heavens and the earth look out upon us and in a natural way bring judgment upon us. Go and commit adultery. And the fantasy you have in your mind that it'll all work out, that it'll all be okay, that somehow everybody will get it and understand and we'll all be friends at the end. Yeah. Go out and drink too much and think to yourself, it's just a party, God gets it. God under, he suspends the rules for parties. And then all of a sudden things get out of hand. Go out and cheat at work. Go out and try to put some of, something over on your boss. And sooner or later, the universe will speak out against you. God will make it so that order will trip up chaos. It's just the way it is. And in the midst of it, God will speak. There are those disasters that are natural and happens and God's part of them because he lets it happen. There are those that he causes directly to stop us in our tracks not because he doesn't love us. Not because he wants to condemn us, but because he wants to bring us back. That's the message of Joel. The message of Joel is that the God we love and the God who loves us does bring judgment, does bring justice, but not because he doesn't love us. He does it to grab us and pull us back before we destroy ourselves. Look what we continue to read. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your hearts, with fasting and weeping and mourning. 
Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. And he, he relents from sending calamity. What is he saying? He's saying to the people, listen, all you have to do is turn around. All you have to do when you find the world just coming down upon you and the universe speaking out against you, when you have made a big mess of it all and you have made a disaster of your life, of your marriage, when you've made a disaster of your friendships and of your jobs and your relationships, when you've made a disaster of your faith and your walk with God, all we have to do is simply call out upon his name. All we have to do is approach him with a broken heart. Remember when we were doing the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit. Why are they poor in spirit? Because they get it. They understand their poverty. They understand their brokenness. They understand their sinfulness. Blessed are those who mourn. Why? Because they weep, not, not upon the results of the consequences of what they've done. They weep because they see who they are before a holy God. They see the ugliness and the awfulness of their sins. And they weep. And just like that, when we do it, God just reaches out and grabs us and embraces us. And yet it's interesting, sometimes people don't do that. Sometimes when people are standing in the midst of disasters that, that they know they've caused and, and they know they're responsible for, they just think to themselves, it's too late, it's over. This is just the way it's gonna be and God is, is not coming back. It's too late or it's too big. How could God ever forgive this? How could God ever want me back when I've gone so far and I've turned so much against him? People don't repent because it's too late or it feels too big or they don't see God anywhere. But see, faith is when you know and you believe who God is and you trust him. No matter how far you've gone, no matter how big it is, no matter how much you can't see God, you just, you close your eyes and with sorrow for what you've done, you repent in your heart and God comes back. Look what we read. Continue. I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten. Isn't that cool? After we've made this huge mess of everything, God says this, if you turn back to me, 
I'll restore everything the, the locusts have eaten. In fact, I'll do more than that. I'll prosper you in a way that you can't imagine. You see, the principle of Job is this. There's no mess that God can't manage. There is no mess that God can't manage. You gotta know you've made a mess and you gotta take responsibility for it. You can't run away from it. You can't blame others. You can't blame God. You've gotta take responsibility. And in that, know that there's no mess that he can't manage. That's why he's God. That's, that's the awesome nature of God. For God works all things to the good for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. He works all things. The things that people put upon you to trip you up and the things that you put upon yourself to trip yourself up. God works all of them to the good because there's no mess that he can't manage. All you have to do is turn in his direction. All you have to do is, is just believe in that affection that he has for you and let go. And he'll manage whatever mess you've made. He'll manage whatever mess your family members have made that you've had to live in. He'll manage whatever mess the sinful system of this world creates for you. He'll manage it. Because that's what God does. What we have to do is just simply turn and repent. Repentance means not that I just speak words of contrition that become the formula for which God lets me off the hook because that's not the case. God will not be mocked. Repentance has to be real. You have to be sorry for the ugliness of your sin, for the way that you turned away from God, for the way that you've hurt other people. When you do that, God takes repentance and he redeems us. And not only does he redeem us, but he restores us. He restores us with everything that we had before, but even more. Remember the story of Job, where God had allowed Satan to just wreak havoc on Job's life. And, and Job lost everything. And yet he remained faithful to God in the midst of it. And in the end, at the end of the story, we're told that everything he had, God had just multiplied over and over. Because that's what God does. 
God redeems us. He restores us. He renews us. Look at what we read in the rest of chapter 2. And afterwards, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. And your young men will see visions. Now he was pointing to the day of Christ. But he was saying to Israel, I'm going to restore you. And I'm going to do something bigger than anything I've ever done before your eyes. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and you will minister and witness and testify to the glory of God and you will experience the joy of God. Real joy is not an emotion. It's a condition in which we live. But it's a condition that we can only live in when we walk in faithfulness with God. I can't tell you why every disaster happens, but I can tell you this. God is present in every disaster. And in every disaster, God is love. And in every disaster, God can be experienced and relied upon. And in all the devastation that we create for ourselves, God can take it and recreate it into something beautiful for his kingdom, something edifying for our lives. The message of Joel to the people of Israel is turn away from, from your mess. Turn away from your idolatry and your ingratitude. Turn away from your immorality. And turn back to God. I love this story by, um, of Ruth Graham who after 9-11, um, not Ruth Graham, um, her daughter, excuse me, um, who after 9-11 was asked you know, how God could let something like that happen. And she said, God is present in it all. And yet when a nation says to God, we don't want any part of you. We don't want you in our churches. We don't want you in our schools. We don't want you in our lives. God is the perfect gentleman and never goes where he's not wanted. Why do we have disasters? Why do we live in devastation? Because we forget. There's no devastation when God is there. There's no disaster that he, he can't restore. That why we can't explain it all, all we have to know is that God is present and God is good. 
And God can take what seems to be hopeless and expand it beyond our wildest dreams. And all we have to do is remember that there's no mess that he can't manage. That there's no limitations and no obstacles that his love can't break through. And there's no future that's a waste if it's a future given to him. Let's join our hearts in prayer.